If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be reading through our preaching passage this morning, which is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. So verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we come now to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do pray uh, that this uh, morning uh, your word would be to us as uh, it says it is here, the sword of your spirit. So please, Holy Spirit, do your work among us through your word for your glory. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, go ahead and keep your Bibles open or reopen if you shut them when we prayed. Uh, we're looking uh, at the end of the book of Ephesians in our series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, particularly these 10 verses in chapter 6 on uh, the armor of God or spiritual warfare, as we've called it, uh, reflecting Paul's teaching here that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the spiritual rulers of this, uh, of this present uh, darkness. So we're thinking about uh, that together. And uh, we've come uh, this Sunday to uh, particularly uh, verse 14. And uh, we're looking at each of the, the parts of the armor of God in turn. And so this, uh, uh, this Sunday, we're looking at the belt of truth, which is the first part of verse 14. So let me read that out for you. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 14, stand therefore, and you may remember from last week that we looked at how Paul repeats that idea of standing as a core key idea of what it means for us to fight the spiritual battle, we need to stand and so he emphasizes that again at the start of this verse. He transitions to each of the pieces of the armor of God. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of, uh, of truth. And so what we're going to be thinking about uh, today uh, is uh, this, uh, this belt of truth. Having fastened on uh, the belt of truth. 
Now, as I said last week, each time we look at these pieces of the armor of God, we need to set it in context and understand it. And that's particularly important when it comes to this idea of the belt of truth. Perhaps when you think of spiritual warfare, you have in your mind all sorts of slightly strange ideas and sort of weird um, practices and all the rest. But here we are. We come to the first piece of the armor of God, and Paul emphasizes truth, the mind, how we think. So when we come to consider spiritual warfare, remove once from all from our conceptions of what that might mean, any sort of weird, uh, I don't know, kind of like... uh, um, Star Wars force flying out of our hand at demons or something like that. When Paul begins to think about it, he thinks about truth, the mind, how we think. And uh, we need, therefore, to particularly be careful. We put this in the context of his message uh, to uh, the Ephesians overall. And so just to remind ourselves Uh, of that. Uh, We looked at this a bit last week, but to remind ourselves, you'll remember that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is basically divided into two halves. The first half, he emphasizes what Christ has done, what he has done uh, in his work on the cross when he died and rose again. Uh, The finished work of Christ is all emphasized in one way or another over and over again for the first three chapters of uh, the letter to the Ephesians. And then he transitions in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says this, Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So that calling to which you've been called is his way of saying what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of what Christ has done. That is, there's certain things you need to do because of what Christ has done. And uh, so when we come to the belt of truth, what is this truth? Well, of course, it's what Christ has done. That's, that's the truth we need to put on. Uh, the, uh, the context of the letter of the Ephesians uh, also has an ongoing theme that runs through it. And that theme, again, as we saw last week, and I'll just remind ourselves of it so we... Uh, stay clear in our thinking, that theme is of the new creation. So chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for we, uh, that is those of us who are Christians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, he's emphasizing that structure of what Christ has done, therefore what you should do. But here there's this theme of the new creation, for we are his workmanships created in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have been newly created. You're a new creation. But for what purpose? And the purpose he uh, talks about in chapter 2, verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So this new creation isn't just us as individuals. It's us as this new society in which all the uh, divisions between people All the divisions between races are once for all reconciled and sorted out. We're reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each each other. The dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile, the Jewish people from all the other nations, that's what Gentile means, the races, the nations, 
That dividing wall of hostility is broken down so that he's created now one new society. But that's all broken down. And this new creation. And therefore, because that's what he's done, we need to live up to it. So chapter 4, verse 24, and to put on the new self. We've got to put this on. There's something we need to do because of what Christ has done. We need to put on the new self, chapter 4, verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God has established this new one society, but we need to live up to it. We need to be one. So now when we come to this issue of the belt of truth, what is the truth that we're, we're to put on? This belt of truth is this embodied reality of this new creation, this new society that he has made. We're now to put that on as a people. And, uh, and so that's all in the context. Now the question, of course, we have to consider as we begin to get into it is why we should spend uh, so long on, on this just one aspect of the belt of truth. Why should we think about it to, to such an extent? And my answer to that question is simply this. I think it is the most important matter for the church, capital T, capital C, to get right today, period. I actually think it would be a good use of our time as a church to spend the rest of the year figuring this out. It's that big a deal. I said, why's that? Because we live in an age where truth is being fundamentally destroyed everywhere for philosophical and technological reasons. Philosophically, relativism, the doctrine that there is no real absolute truth, has borne a, a paradoxical, counterintuitive, surprising child. And that surprising child is not that people think that you know, it's fine to believe whatever you want. Actually, what is, it's created is segments of warring micro-truths where everyone's certain their truth is, is right, but there's no overarching big T, capital T, truth that can create unity. And so we're all in these segmented groups. It's a huge problem. And it needs to be fixed. So, so, that's, that's, so philosophically, but then also technologically. I don't think, we're just beginning to realize what a huge era of change we're going through. All the news items that we are constantly being bombarded these days that surprise us and shock us, they're all symptoms of, an, of living through an era of massive change. In fact, not only is the change fast, is the, is the is there a significant pace of change, the rate of the pace of change is constantly increasing. In other words, we're living in a time of exponential change. Let me give you some data around that. This is uh, some of the latest data. It actually comes out of uh, MIT. Uh, Some data around it. 1995, there were 4 million users of the internet By 2010, there were 2 billion, 
By 2015, so exponential rate of change, by 2015, 3 billion. We live in an age of massive amounts of information. And of course, with that, there's massive amounts of misinformation. Or look at it this way. Um, It took airplanes 68 years to get to 50 million users. So after 68 years, uh, there were 50 million users of airplanes. It took TV 22 years to get to 50 million users. It took the internet seven years to get to 50 million users. And it took Pokemon Go 19 days. Scholars estimate that information uh, doubled. Of course, it's information, not always truth, but, or even knowledge, true knowledge. But information doubled, human information doubled every 100 years up until 1900. It doubled every 25 years up until 1945. Up until 1982, human information doubled every year. And in 2020, doubled every day. You are living, we are living in a time of unimaginable amounts of information, which is constantly bombarding us. And it's no wonder we're confused. So truth, buckling on the belt of truth, figuring out what is what is true and what is not true is of massive importance for Christians, for society at large today. Well then, uh, the question then is, what is this truth? And uh, so uh, he says, uh, uh, buckle on or fasten, having fastened on, it's an active thing. You've got to do something about it. It's not passive. Remember when the second half of the letter, what Christ has done, therefore what you need to do. So you need to buckle this on. It's an active fastening on of the belt of truth. But what is the belt? If you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you'll know that the typical um, answer to that is that Paul, who was in jail at the time, uh, would have been watching Roman soldiers and would have seen the way that they were um, kitted out, the, the, the army uniform they were wearing, and he's drawing an analogy from the Roman soldier towards um, putting on these uh, these gospel elements for spiritual warfare and so uh, the uh, if that's the case then the the belt would have been the Roman soldier belt not just a small little belt but a belt that was designed to provide some protection and kind of hold everything all the different equipment together and that may be the analogy it could also be the case though that Paul is thinking uh, in terms of um, Isaiah's description of the Messiah So in the book of Isaiah, the Messiah is um, described as uh, as putting on um, spiritual armor. And so in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 5, the Messiah puts on the belt of faithfulness. And so Paul could be thinking in messianic terms so there's this community remember it's not just not just us individually it's us as a new society we are the body of Christ we're the temple of the Holy Spirit and we together as this body 
Now, we, we, Christ is the head, and we put on this belt of truth. We're the, we're the people of the Messiah. He could be, he could be thinking like that. I, myself, I think he's thinking more um, practically, and I get this from uh, Charles Hodge, who was the great, one of the great uh, American Christian leaders in the 19th century, a Presbyterian Princeton leader, Charles Hodge. And the, 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 the thinking here is that, that Paul was thinking, as I say, just quite practically. So in the ancient world, um, people didn't wear clothes, the same sort of clothes as you and I wear now. They, weren't, they didn't wear close-fitting clothes. Uh, they wore long, loose garments. And before you did any kind of activity, whether that was you know, working in your garden or, or certainly going to war or construction work, before you did any kind of activity, you had to deal with all this long, loose clothes. And what you did is you sort of gathered it all up and you tied it around your waist with a belt. And the ancient translations then used to call this girding up your loins. Of course, we have no idea what loins are. The only time we talk about loins these days are when you order a steak and you say, I like a sirloin. But... um, the, the idea is, and is that there are these loose-fitting clothes and you sort of gather them all up and you tie them around so now you're ready. And so what Paul is saying, I think, is he's saying, get ready. In the, in the, in the old English way of putting it, good up your loins. Put on, get, that, get buckled up. Like, take off your dress clothes Put on your army fatigues. Get ready to go for a run. You don't run in your suit. Buckle up. Gird up your loins. Get ready. That's what he's saying. And well, how do we get ready? Well, we get ready with truth. We'll never, we'll never fight spiritual battle unless we are we have this truth. But then what is, what, what does he mean by when he says, uh, you know, the, the belt of truth? What is this truth? There's actually been significant conversation about that too down through the years. So John Calvin, uh, he said, because in the Greek, the way it, it, it goes, and this of course is reflected perfectly clearly in the English, but, but it, it says, uh, fasten up belt, the belt of truth, not the belt of the truth. And therefore, John Calvin, the great reformer from uh, Geneva, um, John Calvin said that he thought, therefore, that Paul was talking here about sincerity, a personal, genuine commitment, an authentic involvement, being sincere. It's, it's possible, but then William Gurnall, who's that person I, I recommend you read William Gurnall's The Christian and Complete Armour last week, and uh, some of you did take me up on actually ordering the book, so congratulations uh, for having done that. You've got, but actually, I, you may realize now I underestimated how long it is. It actually isn't 600 pages, it's more like 1,200, so good luck with that. And um, it was a, you know... As uh, one of one of our pastors used to joke with me, evangelistically speaking, it was 600, but really it was 1,200. You know, and um, 
So, but William Gurnall, though, disagreed with Calvin. So William Gurnall said, no, I think actually Paul means both. What Paul means is the sincerity of personal commitment, that subjective side of truth, but also the objective truth that Paul's been talking about, of course, in the letter to Ephesians. And I'm, al- I'm almost, I agree with Gurnall, and I disagree with Calvin. I think Calvin was wrong in that regard. I mean, it's not a major doctrinal error, but I think he was wrong in that regard. I think Gurnall was right. Almost certainly Paul means both. He means the subject of, yeah, I'm in, I'm sincere about this, but also he's referring to the truth, truth that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians. But whether you agree with me about that or not, at a practical level, it doesn't really make much difference because practically speaking, for a Christian to be sincere, they need to be sincere about the truth of God. And if you're going to buckle on the truth of God, you need to do it sincerely. So either way, it, it, it comes down to the same thing. But what then is this Truth, if it's sincere and there's an objective side to it, the truth, the truth that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians, what is it? And the answer to that is what he's been describing in the book. So if you turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, this is the sort of thing that he has in mind. And this, in many ways, is the heart of the most profound thing that he's talking about in Ephesians Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And as you turn there, there is one extra piece of context you need to have in your mind to understand it. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians has, in the New Testament, has a companion letter. And that companion letter is the letter to the Colossians. And uh, the letter to the Ephesians, some of you may know that in some of the early manuscripts, to the Ephesians is not in some of the manuscripts. And that's almost certainly because the letter to the Ephesians was intended to be a circular letter that would have been read by the Ephesians, but also by the Christians in Colossae and the other churches, probably, in that Lycus Valley region, the churches of Asia that you can read about in the beginning of uh, Revelation, the, the seven churches of Asia. There's a collection of churches that communicated with each other. And the reason why this is significant is because in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and there's a lot of overlap of language and ideas between the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's counteracting a heresy. And that heresy, that false teaching, is basically a mystical legalism. That is, if you want to have a mystical experience, there are certain rules you need to follow. You need to make sure you keep certain feast days, and then you need to fast at other days, and there are certain things you need to do. You need to have an ascetic, harsh treatment of the body. It's, it's a legalistic set of rules, certain things you must not touch or taste, and it's legalism, and, but it's a mystical legalism. If you do that, then you'll have this mystical experience of sort of angels and all the rest. Actually, as a bit of a sidebar, it's amazing how often that mysticism in Christian history becomes legalistic. There are certain things you need to do in order to have the mystical experience, and therefore it becomes a kind of mystical legalism. But Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, counteracts that by exalting Christ. He says, you don't need any of that stuff. You have Jesus. Jesus who is uh, in the very image of the invisible God, who's before all things and in whom all things hold together. You've got Christ. What else do you need? And then he says, so set your heart on him. Set your mind on him. Set your mind on things above. Set your heart on things above. So he deals with the heresy doctrinally. But when he comes to this letter to the Ephesians, he deals with it. There's doctrine here, 
Of course, a lot of doctrine. But his end desire is that the churches would embody that truth. So now, come to this Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 onwards and see how he does it. So, chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, for by grace... You've been saved through faith. Here's the the doctrine of the gospel. It's not not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Again, it's what Christ has done. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All that's a defeat of this mystical legalism. Therefore, he says, verse 11, chapter 2, remember that at one time you Gentiles... Uh, Paul, of course, was a Jew, so now he's speaking to the Gentile Christians, the the non-Jewish Christians, the Greeks, the Romans, the people of other races. Remember, therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. They weren't circumcised, the Gentiles, according to the law of Moses. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So if you're not a Christian, you have no hope. I say, well, I, I, I'm hopeful about all sorts of things. No, you misunderstand what Paul's saying. You have no hope. Oh, what, what do you mean? What I mean is we're going to die. And you say, well, that's rather morbid. It's not morbid. It's just reality. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have the only one who died and rose again. And you have no hope of a resurrection. You have no hope. But if you are a Christian, you do have a... Remember that if you, before you were a Christian, you had no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off outside the, uh, the people of God, because you weren't Jewish, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Here's the embodied, beginning of the embodied reality in this new society. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember, there's that wall, literal wall between where Gentiles could go in the temple and where those who were Jewish could go. There was a dividing wall of hostility. Christ has broken that down. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, all those ceremonial laws have been removed by Jesus. He fulfilled the law. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's created this one new society. And, he, and, he, and, and that's the truth. You've got to buckle this on, Ephesians. He came and preached peace to you afar off and peace to those who are near, for through him we've both access in one spirit to the, to the Father. The, He's created this one new body. You don't need this false teaching. You don't need this mystical legalism. You have Christ. And now I'm calling you to embody that reality in this new society that he has made. Well, what is that new society? So he says, uh, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You have a citizenship. He's not talking about what we would say a national citizenship. He's talking about citizens of the city of God. 
You are fellow citizens with the saints. Uh, there he's referring to the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish uh, godly men and women who are saints. So they're now we're together, the Jew and Gentile, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, there is a temple still. The temple, we as individual Christians, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we as this new society are a temple. It's extraordinary language here. A temple in the Lord, and he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In some extraordinary way that it's hard for us to get our minds around, The Spirit dwells with us, in us, and we're being built together into a place where God dwells. I say, that's that's the truth. I want you to buckle on, Ephesians. Well, how, how can we summarize it? Here's how I summarize what he's saying in one I'm afraid, slightly complicated sentence, but it's not that, sen- not that complicated, so you, but I think it helps clarify it. Here it is. The f- this is the truth. The full-orbed gospel truth that counteracts false teaching, or we might say in our day, misinformation, by actively buckling on the true teaching, or truth, what is that true, true teaching or, the, or truth? Of the new creation in the united new society of the church. I say, well, okay, fine, but how? Well, as we come uh, towards the end, let me just explain how in three, I hope, fairly simple words. First of all, our devotional life, devotional life. And here I'm going to make a shameless plug (laughs) for a set of devotions that that I wrote over a number of years that go through the Scriptures, and uh, they're free. You can go to godcenterlife.org, and they'll be sent direct to your inbox. You don't have to use that. You can you know, the number of different options out there, of course, of, but but I emphasize that one because what I want you to do in your devotional life is actually to read the Bible. It may sound a surprising thing for a pastor to encourage, but the number of people I, I come across say I did my devotions, and what they really mean is they read a Christian book that is sort of vaguely. No, no, I want you to read the Bible. And if you're sent a devotional, I want it to be the kind of devotional that encourages you to read the Bible. Of course, that's always been a good idea. <laughs> but especially now, you, you, we are not going to be prepared, buckled up, fastened on with truth. And this day, you remember those massive amounts of information that you're being constantly bombarded with that I, uh, that I indicated at the, uh, at the beginning. Uh, the, the, the human information is doubling every day. You're not going to think clearly, have the truth razor sharp in your mind, 
if you just come to church on Sunday and don't open the Bible until you come back again. You're just not. There's all this constant information all the time that you're swimming in. So read the Bible. And, you know, devotional life. But then also devotional life, then church life. Um, Whether you come here or you go to another church, I want you to go to church where the Bible is taught. Now, when I first started preaching, um, I, the first time I gave was when I was 14. So, but when I first started preaching, I guess like in a full-time kind of way, when I was about 22 or something like that. When I first started preaching, you didn't need to emphasize this so much. It was kind of assumed that uh, churches that believe the Bible would also teach the Bible. It didn't, it didn't seem like you had to say that. But now you can go to church that believes the Bible, but doesn't ever teach it. (laughs) One friend of mine who's um, looking for a church in a different state, a different part of the country, uh, was talking to me about one of the churches uh, he went to. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but I'll I'll keep it anonymous uh, uh, at any rate. But he was looking for a church, uh, and the whole thing, you won't be able to figure out where it is or what it is. But he went to a church in a different part of the country, and he, he texted me and said, you know, I went there, and the guy didn't even open the Bible. He just, he, he talked about families, and that was about it. And I said, I texted him back, um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I said, but I bet he was wearing skinny jeans, so that counts as something, right? <laughs> and the funny thing is, he was wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> like, you know... I, I, wear skinny jeans if you want to, that's fine, but, but, you know, also preach the Bible, right? So that kind of church, and again, let me give a shameless plug for tonight, we're restarting our evening service at five o'clock, and one of the many reasons why we want to do it is because we want to get people into community around the scriptures more regularly. So come back tonight, we're going to be here, it's going to be a great um, service, so devotional life, church life, but then also intellectual life. We live in a time, you know, what is the battle that is going on right now? It's a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. And what is at the heart of the battle that we're going on right now? We live in an information age. What does that mean, the heart of the battle is? It's a battle for the mind. And we Christians need to up our game. It's a difficult thing to say, but Christians are not known for their thinking. And of course, they've been great Christian thinkers, and they still are today. But by and large, in the popular culture, you say Christian, you don't think great thinker. We need to change that. There was a book written some years ago called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a very influential book, and the sort of comment, the quip that was made about that book over the years was the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not one. And that's unfair because there are great evangelical thinkers. But there's enough of an element of truth to it. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
And we're not going to win the world for Jesus if we don't think straight. We haven't buckled on the truth. And it's, it, it's just such a huge issue today. I, Rochelle and I sometimes joke, uh, Rochelle's my wife, we joke at home about how sometimes people will say, I've done research on that. And what they mean is they've watched some YouTube videos, they've scrolled down Facebook or Instagram, or who knows, maybe TikTok, I don't know. Uh, They've Google searched it, and now they have an opinion. That's not research. I've done research. That's not it. I mean, I haven't done scientific in the sense of um, like chemistry or physics kind of research, but I've done historical research. And research in that realm is not me reading some books about the past. That's not research. That's not, you can read as many books about the past as you like, but that's not research. Research is getting first-hand accounts, eyewitness accounts. And if there are documents written by the person you're researching, reading those documents. When I did, um, I did research on Jonathan Edwards, and when I did research on him, he went to the library where his manuscripts are kept, and looked at his handwriting, which is practically illegible. It took me about six months to be able to figure out how to read it. And then when you do that, you find out things that you would never find simply by reading the published books about Edwards. So just one example of that, like there's, a, there's a long note that he wrote about baptism. Edwards was a um, congregational minister, so like Presbyterians and Church of England, my background's Church of England, um, but they have an infant Baptist view of uh, what the Bible teaches about baptism. And Edwards, in this long uh, note on baptism, basically defended, very articulately, the sort of traditional view on baptism. And you could probably find that note uh, published somewhere on the internet these days. But what you would not find, I don't think, unless you looked at the handwritten note, is that, so Edwards, uh, when he was young, wrote very, very small. And as he got older, his handwriting got bigger. Typical pattern for people is that you get older, you tend to write bigger because your fine motor control gets less fine. And um, so he, and, and, and later he returned to that manuscript And he wrote at the top of it, after this long note defending um, a traditional view of baptism, he wrote at the top of it, these things about baptism be doubtful. In other words, he wasn't sure. But you wouldn't know that if I hadn't told you, right? And you wouldn't know unless you researched it. So I'm not saying that everyone who's an expert is always right. We know that certainly isn't true. But don't don't prejudge conclusions by scrolling through your Instagram feed or doing a quick Google search. Where, how do I? How then do I come to a, a mind on a clear mind about truth? I remember one um, one fellow I was talking to, a, a Christian who really um, uh, effective in his area and. But he, he, he shared with me that, that in his view, 
he wasn't sure that the, the, the moon landing was probably faked. I remember sitting down with him and said, that's what you really think? He said, yeah. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, that's what I think. I said, okay, let's just backtrack a little bit. Uh, first of all, in terms of knowledge, what we can know for sure, there are very few things that we can know for 100% sure in life in general. In fact, really, it's down to a mathematical thing. You're like, two plus two equals four, 100% certain. Unless, you know, you, you think your, your neurons are being stimulated by a mad neurological scientist and the, the world is, a, is, is just make-believe, in which case you're insane. So, but the, assuming, you know, that you think this world is real, you, you, two plus two equals four, certain. And then outside of that, you build up your confidence for what the scholars call justified true belief, you build up your confidence based upon evidence and data to come to a justifiable conclusion. When it comes to something like the moon landing, there's so much evidence that it's clearly the justified conclusion. He's like, oh, okay. You can always doubt something. We've got, to, we've got to think clearly. I say we could, spend, we could spend the rest of the year on this, but obviously I don't, maybe we will. I don't think we will. Let me just give you a few simple ways to think, and they all begin with the letter P. Very briefly, here they are. First of all, priority, to think biblically. Priority. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Is this a kingdom priority? Number two, prudence, which is this whole area we've just been working out. So the book of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the is, is the fear of God, is this prudence, is this right thinking based upon the fear of the Lord. So priority, prudence, providence, God is totally in charge, is this actually an opportunity here? Principle, I'll take it at Cottage Church, that if we uh, read something in the Bible that says you should do this or you should not do that, then we'll follow what the Bible says. But there's so many things in life that the Bible does not specifically address. For that, we need prudence, but also principle. There are many times, though the Bible does not specifically address it, the principle is in the Bible and is appropriately applied. Is this a right application of the biblical principle? People... Um, I will not do something if Rochelle thinks I'm off base and vice versa. We've never made a decision or come to a point where we're like we're, no, that's complete. The other person thinks that's wrong. Similarly with the people that God has put around me and put around you that we're accountable to in the church. If the elders think, no, that's not a good idea, we're not doing it. I'm not going to force it through because we are accountable. We're, the people that God has put around us, that's one of the ways God protects us from jumping off the deep end. And then prayer. There is a subjective side to it. I'm praying about it. I feel the Lord's leading. But most, so many Christians, they just, that's all they have. I've prayed about it. I feel the Lord's leading. That's good enough. No, it's not. Is it a priority? Is it prudence? Is it a principle from the Bible? Is it what those you're accountable to think is a good idea? You know, there are some P's I didn't put here. Um, popularity. In other words, don't judge truth by whether the Twitter 
person you're following has the blue check mark or how many millions of followers they have. Truth is not determined by popularity. Preference is what I like. I'm free. I'm going to do it. Not that. Or politics. This is my tribe. That's what everyone else in my tribe thinks. Therefore, that's what I think. No, we've got to buckle on uh, the truth. What is that truth? The full-orbed gospel truth that counteracts false teaching or misinformation by actively buckling on the true teaching or truth of the new creation in the united new society of the church. Or to put it in a very simple uh, word picture uh, from Charles Spurgeon, always good to come to a conclusion with Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, the best way to show that a stick is crooked is to put a straight stick next to it. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is, embody that truth. So people will see in who you are the truth of the gospel. This new creation where the dividing wall of hostility is broken down where we are being built together into a place where God dwells by his spirit. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do thank you uh, for uh, this teaching on spiritual warfare. Help us to fight uh, by putting on the belt of truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.